Hello everybody, my name is Andy and I would like to welcome you to this very special episode of UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff. Yes, everybody, that is correct. Today is the 24th of June, 2022, the 75th anniversary of the Kenneth Arnold sightings of strange things flying in the skies over Mount Rainier in Washington State. It was only a couple of days, well, a few weeks after this, that uh, the Roswell incident happened. And basically, those two incidents kicked off what we know now as modern ufology. Both the 24th of June and the 2nd of July are celebrated around the world as World UFO Days. So to you I say, from me to you, happy World UFO Day. Just a few things to let you know before we get started and that is that the video version of this podcast is now available on the website www.ufosandops.com just click the bit that says vodcast and it will take you right to the video channel which obviously will feature all the previous uh, podcast vodcasts uh, that I've done. And please also think about sending a donation. Uh, you can do that through the website too. There is a donation button there. If you like the things that I do with this podcast, vodcast and the website etc. And yes, it is all done by me alone then please do think about donating just a small amount. As the great Howard Hughes, the presenter of The Unexplained, once said, a cup of coffee costs £2, and within a few minutes that £2 is all gone. Here, that £2 will go towards making the show even better. But I hate to tell you, Howard, the price of coffee has now gone up to £3. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? Now, the Kenneth Arnold sighting really was the starting point for modern ufology, wasn't it? With Roswell coming only a matter of days later, the subject really did take off in the media. But what happened before 1947? Why did the media start to get interested in ufology when these two incidents occurred? My guess would be that with all that went on before in the 1940s regarding UFOs, they just needed one more credible incident or sighting to break the camel's back, so to speak. That sighting was made by Kenneth Arnold as he flew his little plane near Mount Rainier in Washington State on that infamous date 75 years ago today. As this is a celebratory episode of not just the birth of modern ufology, but ufology in general, I thought I would take a look at the many sightings and incidents that created the ufology that we all know and love today. Of course, it didn't all start in 1947. As I said just before, things were seen in the sky before then. In fact, things were seen in the skies over 1,000 years before then. 2,600 years ago, the Bible mentions in an incident that could very well go down in history as the very first UFO encounter. While many believe that the placing of Adam and Eve on the earth could have been by extraterrestrials placing humans and animals off of the ark, 
a UFO that took two of every species and placed them on the earth, I'm going to go with the sighting as detailed in Ezekiel chapter 1. And it goes like this. In my thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Busi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and saw the windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like a glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side had the face of a lion, and on the left side the face of an ox, each also the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, they each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on each other side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead, wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and the structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel, intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and the four rims were full of eyes all around. Sounds like windows to me. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose from the ground. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings.
Long-time listeners would have heard me say that before in the Isle of Mull Air Mystery Viking Gods episode. It would seem that that could have been the very first instance of a UFO sighting in human history. The Bible is quite full of what could be interpreted as alien-related incidents one way or another. It could also be that these stories were dumbing downs of real alien uh, incidents so as not to scare the public, or more likely so that the religious, then the royal, then later the politicians, uh, the political leaders of this world could keep control over the population. They will always tell you that there are no aliens, but they will also tell you that God created the earth. Think about that. UFOs in the Middle Ages. The Romans described them as burning shields. Those living in the Indian subcontinent recorded them in the Mahabharata, a Sanskrit chronicle that they were gods who flew in Vimana, which means deadly lances, spread across the sky. The first ever recording in the UK of what we would now term as a UFO or a UAP happened in 1113 when religious pilgrims from the southwest reported seeing glowing fire belching dragon emerge from the sea, flying into the air and disappearing into the sky. In January 1254, in St Albans in England, a scribe wrote of a glowing floating light and recorded it thus. In serene sky and clear air, with stars shining and the moon eight days old, there was suddenly appeared in the sky a kind of large ship, elegantly shaped, well-equipped and of marvellous colour. Then of course you have the paintings. There's the Annunciation, painted in Germany in 1500, which amongst other things shows a dark cloud with possibly God appearing through it. Then there is an illustration from the manuscript Livre de Bon Meuse de Jacques Le Grand, I hope I said that correctly, uh, from 1490, which shows Fortuna, the personification of luck, with her spinning wheel. She seems to be dealing with some people. Other people on a hill have their hands positioned together, palm to palm, while looking at a big, highly detailed golden orb, floating in the sky. Of course, perspective was never a big thing with many pictures and paintings from the Middle Ages, so it is impossible to describe how high or indeed how close the orb might actually be to the people. There's also something which I think is known as the calendar page for April from 1480. This shows a roundel at the bottom of the page featuring three people walking, while in the distance there is a classic disc-shaped UFO looking like it's aiming something at the castle in the background. Then there is the famous one, the picture of the Madonna and child with the infant St. John. That painting, created in the 15th century, was attributed to more than one artist and hangs currently in the Hercules room of the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence. It shows the Madonna with two young children, Jesus Christ and St. John the Baptist, who was also the patron saint of Florence. What is interesting about this picture is that in the top left there appears to be something orange looking with three darker objects below it. Some say that those are tentacles but I am not sure. However, behind Mary's head is another dark object in the sky. The object has what seems to be a sort of glow around it. 
This is the object that has given the painting the nickname the Madonna and the Flying Saucers. And some have stated that it might be some dirt or some sort of damage, but that doesn't really stand up. When you look again behind Mary's back, you will see someone with a dog clearly standing, looking directly up at the UFO in the sky. Even the dog is looking, which tells me it must be making some sort of sound. Surely the artist would not paint the person and the dog looking up where the damage is going to occur on the painting in future, would he? These pictures will go up on the website so that you can all make your own minds up. Pictures have proven to be very important throughout the history of ufology. The earliest photograph of a UFO came on the 12th of August 1883. Back in those days, some astronomers often saw what they thought were meteors behaving very oddly. They described them in their works but had no UFO mystery in which to place them. One man decided that this needed to be visually recorded. This photograph taken from the observatory near Zacatecas, nearly 11,000 feet up a Mexican mountain. José Bonilla said that he saw more than 300 unidentified objects crossing in front of the sun while he was observing sunspots. He took some photographs by exposing wet plates at 1 one-hundredth a second and the photos do appear to show something in front of the sun. His photographs have been credited as the very first showing a UFO. Go forward to November 1896, the airship flap. As the 19th century was drawing to a close, many people began to report seeing craft that resembled airships floating around the skies of the United States of America. The night of the 17th of November 1896 was to become one of notoriety for the citizens of Sacramento in California. Many reported seeing an electric arc lamp propelled by some unknown and mysterious force. Often it was just a light drifting in the sky, but there were, no, there were daylight sightings all over the state too. Other people stated that the light was on a cigar-shaped flying object, which is what an airship would look like. People wondered if it was actually a real airship built in secret, maybe a new kind of military technology. Some people thought this must be Martians coming to check out if the Earth is possible for colonisation. Others thought that this might have been a real alien craft just stopping by. Many of the press did the usual thing and reported nothing, but some others thought that, given the amount of reports coming in, there must be something in this. Maybe the airship flap could go down as the first mass sightings of UFO in human history. There wasn't too much to report in the decades after that, but that was until 1942, when during the ongoing World War II, things started to appear over the skies of Los Angeles, and people got scared. The invasion of Los Angeles, as it was to be known, happened just a matter of weeks after the Japanese devastating attack on Pearl Harbor, the heart of the US Pacific Fleet. The USA was on war alert in case another fleet decided to try to do the impossible and attack the United States. It was in the early hours of the 25th of February 1942 when air raid sirens started to yell. 
around 2.30 in the morning a total blackout was ordered and thousands of air raid wardens had to go to their positions immediately. At around 3.16 in the morning the 37th Coast Artillery Brigade began firing machine guns and anti-aircraft shells into the sky at unidentified flying objects flying over the city. LA was under attack was the thought racing through the minds of the city's inhabitants. Pilots of Interceptor Command were alerted and they took up positions in their airplanes. Artillery fire continued until 4.14 that morning. The all clear was sounded and the blackout lifted at 7.21. Some buildings, buses and cars were damaged but the cause of the damage was found to be fragments of shells. Some people were tragically killed too but by anti-aircraft uh, fire that had come back down to earth. The incident was front-page news in many USA newspapers, but because of news blackouts across the rest of the world, because of the war, it was not known to other countries that this event had taken place. The photograph put out in the newspapers shows searchlights shining up from the ground onto a group of lights. A group of lights, what many, are, what many believe to be either one single UFO or a fleet of them. It is worth noting that other than shell fragments and vehicle and building damage, nothing else was discovered on the ground to have been out of the ordinary. I'm, obviously, I'm no weapons expert, I know nothing about them, but what would cause the shells to fragment in such a way? Could it have been done when they were fired or when they hit whatever it was in the sky? With World War II now in full flow, there has to be no doubt that people around the world would see things that they had never seen before. And with the advent of cutting-edge flying technology, there can be no doubt that many people would have been surprised when they saw an enemy warplane or heard the terrifying sound of the Jericho trumpet that was attached to the technologically advanced Strucker planes that belonged to the Luftwaffe or the buzzing engines of the Spitfires, for example. However, something strange made appearances in the sky during that war. From 1942 through to the end of the war, Allied pilots reported encounters with small balls of light that seemed to be under some sort of intelligent control. The pilots all said that these balls of light would chase their planes. Michael Bentine was an intelligence officer with the bomber wing of 626 Squadron. After a raid on a Nazi weapons base at Pinamunda, he said three or four crews came back with identical stories that they had been pursued by a light which was pulsating and had flown around their aircraft. Bentine, who went on to become a very famous comedian with the goons, assumed that the pilots were seeing a phenomena known as St. Elmo's Fire. St. Elmo's Fire is a weather phenomenon in which Luminous plasma is created by corona discharge from a rod-like object such as a mast or a spire, a chimney or even animal's horns in an electrical field. It has also been observed on the leading edge of aeroplanes as well. When Bentine mentioned St Elmo's fire to the crews, they told him that it definitely wasn't as they all knew what St Elmo's fire looked like. What did it do to you? he asked. Nothing, came the answer. So it was not a very effective weapon, he said. But then another crew came in, then another, and then another. In the end, it was obvious that these people had seen it. About 48 hours later, an American officer came in. 
He'd been going around the group and said, I understand your crews have seen it. We call them Foo Fighters, and they appear in daylight as well. We don't know what they are. So I said, neither do I, and neither do the air crew. Were the UFOs about to enter the war? In the 1970s, a promotional film made for the Concorde aeroplane appears to show a possible Foo Fighter coming down from above, seeming to inspect the supersonic plane, then fly away back up into the air again. Now, as we all know, the World War II ended in 1945, but tensions soon arose again in Europe and across the world when former friends by the end of the war, the USSR and the USA, and their allies, fell out, and the run-up to the Cold War began. A lot of the world's public were not interested. They've had to rebuild their own lives, homes, families and countries. But in 1947, two things happened that would bring about something new for the world's population to be worried about more than war. Those things would change the way that people thought about their governments and also change people's thoughts on whether we are really alone in the universe. Enter the flying saucers. On the 24th of June 1947, 75 years ago today, 32-year-old Kenneth Arnold was flying from Chehalis in Washington State to Yakima in a Call Air A2 on a business trip. He heard about a $5,000 reward for the discovery of a US Marine Corps C-46 aeroplane that had crashed near Mount Rainier. Just a few minutes before 3pm and while flying at 9,200 feet, Arnold gave up searching for the plane and started heading back to Yakima. All of a sudden he noticed a bright flashing light. Thinking that he might be flying dangerously too close to another aircraft, Arnold started looking around to try and see what was causing the flashing light. But all he could see was a DC-10 about 15 miles away behind him. Only moments after seeing the first flash of light, Arnold saw more flashes in the distance to his left, but about 20 to 25 miles away. Thinking that they must be reflections on his window, he performed a few tests to make sure. He rocked the plane side to side. He removed his glasses. He then rolled down the window, but the brilliant lights were still there. The lights were reflections coming from flying objects. I observed far to my left and to the north a formation of very bright objects coming from the vicinity of Mount Baker, he said, flying very close to the mountain tops and travelling at tremendous speed. I watched as these objects rapidly neared the snow border of Mount Rainier, all the time thinking to myself that I was observing a whole formation of jets. In group count they numbered nine. They were flying diagonally in an echelon formation. What startled me at this point was I could not see any tails on them. Mr Arnold continued, they very quickly approached Mount Rainier and then passed in front, flipping around erratically, but still giving off that light. He said that he could only see the edge of the craft at times, as it was so thin and flat that they were practically invisible. Arnold described them as a series of objects with convex shapes, though he later revealed one object differed by being crescent-shaped. None of the objects resembled a saucer-like shape, 
but people jumped on the description of flying saucers when later Arnold told news reporters that they flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across water. You can see where the misunderstanding came from. Other descriptions by Arnold was that they were half moon shaped. I think one of the main reasons that ufology really kicked off with the Kenneth Arnold sighting was that with the waves of sightings before that, they were balls of lights, uh, airships, uh, stuff like that, uh, strange airships. Arnold was the first to describe something much more physical and bought no resemblance to any craft seen on earth before that. The term flying saucer was now in the world's vernacular and the reports of flying saucers started to flood in from all over the world. But the mystery deepened when only a few days after Kenneth Arnold's now infamous sighting and a year after thousands of UFOs were reported in Sweden, events which caused the UK and the USA governments to worry as they thought the Soviet Union were testing captured Nazi missiles, the world went UFO crazy. Why? One word. Roswell. On that day, 75 years ago, 2nd of July, uh, 1947, a storm was in full fury over this southern town in the USA when William Brazell heard an explosion. The next day, when the storm had abated, he ventured out to have a look. He's found wreckage all over the ranch and surrounding desert area. It was very light. Brazil likened some of the wreckage to being light as balsa wood, yet shiny and metallic. He said it could not be dented, even with a sledgehammer. Other pieces that he found had strange symbols on them that he could not recognise. Brazil notified the local airbase and intelligence officer, Jesse Marcel, came and collected much of the debris as he could to take it back to the base. The official press release from the Roswell Army Airfield claimed that the stories about flying discs were fact and that wreckage from one had now been recovered. The wreckage was flown to Wright-Patterson Air Base in Dayton, Ohio, a distance of just over 1,300 miles for detailed investigation. However, soon after the Roswell Daily Records famous headline was printed and put out into the world, a second press release came rather quickly. Reporters and newspaper photographers were told that the wreckage was that of a weather balloon. They were only allowed to take photographs from some distance away. Bearing in mind that the wreckage had already been taken away. Apparently, and according to the higher authority that had released the second press release they told reporters that men at the airbase had failed to identify the wreckage as that of a weather balloon with a radio sounding device. The last statement and the fact that it had to be flown 1,300 miles to have a more detailed investigation on the wreckage makes it all smell like there's a late attempt at a cover-up to me. What do you think? Especially when Jesse Marcel himself insisted that the second press release was untrue. Marcel had been treated terribly and threatened by people unknown with his and his family's lives should he reveal anything about the incident to anyone. 
That said, during an interview in the late 1970s with Stanton Friedman, the nuclear physicist who just happened to be the first civilian to document the site of the UFO crash at Roswell and supported the idea that this was indeed a crash of an extraterrestrial spacecraft, Jesse Marcel said he believed the material to, that he handled was extraterrestrial. The material was something I had never seen before or since. It certainly wasn't anything built by us, said Marcel. The Roswell UFO incident was basically forgotten until the late 1970s when the interview between Friedman and Marcel took place. Stanton Friedman and William Moore published their search for eyewitnesses in 1980 in which they proved that the weather balloon explanation was a hastily concocted cover story. The story of Roswell and the crashed flying saucer was now out, unofficially, and conspiracy theorists went absolutely nuts, while others just continued to believe the cover-ups. Jesse Marcel stated for the rest of his life that what he saw that day was not of this earth. His son, Jesse Marcel Jr., also spent decades himself claiming on TV and radio that his father had shown him alien debris recovered from the Roswell crash site, including, according to his wife Linda, a small beam with purple-hued hieroglyphics on it. The incident at Roswell gained more notoriety after Bob Lazar, physicist and employer, at the United States Air Force facility, known more famously as Area 51, claimed in the late 1980s to have reverse-engineered technology found on crashed alien spacecraft, including the one that came to grief at Roswell 75 years ago. It is worth stating too that Lazar has been, according to Wikipedia, arrested a few times since, since claiming these things. In 1990, just a few years after coming out about it, he was arrested for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring. And in 2006, he and his wife were charged with shipping restricted chemicals across state lines. Are those true? Or were the law trying their best to shut Bob Lazar up without assassination? Nevertheless, 1947 saw Roswell firmly placed on the map. It is the spiritual home of ufology worldwide, and I think every ufologist, in fact everyone, should visit there at least once in their lifetime. I plan to, when we're allowed to travel again properly. It is fair to say that after the Kenneth Arnold sighting and the Roswell crash, that aliens and UFOs, etc. were well and truly in the public psyche. And Hollywood used the mystery to frighten those who ventured into theatres to watch those 1950s B-movies, where aliens would land on Earth and begin to attack the planet and its population, only stopping when they got infected with the tiniest of God's living creatures, bacteria. I decided to ask some people what in their opinion would happen in the world's population if a UFO landed on the proverbial White House lawn or Trafalgar Square wherever, uh, today. Their answers were full and varied. Shane Hawkins wrote in and said, Everyone watched the panic and the mayhem unfold when someone said there was non-existent shortage of toilet rolls. Panic buying of everything. Women fighting in supermarkets over toilet rolls. Men fighting in streets over petrol. Old people getting pushed out of the way for queuing for food. The answer to the question is, I don't think the people would take it well. 
total chaos and the ugly side of the human race would be shown again. Of course, Shane was uh, referring to what happened when the lockdowns were called across the world uh, for the COVID-19 pandemic. It was chaos. <laughs> Pamela Beavis has said mass world hysteria because non-believers still wouldn't believe and the believers would want to dismantle it and experiment on the poor little aliens inside. Moreg Noble wrote in and said, Thousands of military would be deployed to take control of the aircraft. My advice to other beings, stay away from Earth, as humans are not to be trusted. Interesting. Kibo Kala has wrote in and said, The spin doctors would debunk it to the point where people would stop believing what they actually saw in front of their face. But so much people already know the universe is teeming with life. That is a good point. Bruce Dill has said, Religion would be debunked. The world would be united. People would realise how our governments have been lying to us. Our thoughts about all the other planets would be expanded. Another good point. And finally, from Peter Pumphrey, my former geography teacher. Former geography teachers, they're legends, aren't they? Probably think, thank heavens for that. Maybe we'll have some sanity brought in to run things at last. Couldn't agree with you more, Mr. Pumphrey. There was just another comment from Saoirse Orion. She says, or the other way around, non-believers would believe because they finally have solid evidence and believers would deny and call it a government conspiracy, trying to deceive us. All good points. What do you think? Send me your comments, send me your messages on ufosandops.com. There's a bit down the bottom of the front page there where you can send me any any anything you like, basically. The public's fear of UFOs and aliens in general turned more real when on the 13th and the 14th of August 1946, US Air Force bases in the UK, RAF Lakenheath and RAF Bentwaters, became locations of some strange goings-on in the skies above. The aliens were flying right above military bases, without care. The radar had picked up an object coming in from the North Sea and approaching at several thousand miles an hour. They also tracked some more targets moving northeast. Those targets seemed to merge into one large target several times the strength of a B-36 before moving off the scope. Another target came in moving really, really fast from east to west. Other targets were tracked moving at approximately 4,000 miles per hour. The base commander sent two RAF de Havilland Venoms into the sky to make visual contact. The first Venom did make contact, but the UFO moves behind it, even when the pilot made violent evasive manoeuvres. Jump forward a few years and the fear became more palpable as reports started to come in about aliens taking people. The most famous case of alien abduction is of course that of Betty and Barney Hill. In September 1961, Betty and Barney Hill, a social worker and a post office employee, were returning home from a holiday. As they drove through the White Mountains en route to their home in New England, they encountered something that would change their lives forever. They hadn't seen a car for miles, but a strange light appeared to be following them. When they got home in the early morning, they were not relaxed at all. 
They felt dirty. Their clothes were inexplicably dirty and ripped. Their watches had stopped working. Two hours of their drive were missing. There were some strange blotches on the car's paintwork as well. The couple tried to forget about the drive home, but it wasn't long afterwards that they both started to experience very strange nightmares which involved alien faces and some sort of medical examinations. All of this really stressed the couple out and they had to go and see a doctor to get some advice. They visited Dr Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist who started a long therapy uh, which included the use of regression hypnosis. The hypnosis helped the doctor trace the problems that the Hills were having back to that drive home. It turns out that it was more fateful than they could have known. The doctor thought that he was treating them for bad nightmares, so he let the story unfold naturally under hypnosis, but it turns out that they were real memories he was treating them for instead. Both Betty and Barney had coherent accounts of what they went through that evening. The light they saw behind the car was indeed a spacecraft. It had stopped the Hills car and little men managed to take the two on board against their will. The Hills were given a probing physical examination. One procedure frightened Betty very much. It involved a needle inserted through her navel. The little men told Betty that this was a pregnancy test. Some years later, a similar procedure was devised for taking amniotic fluid from a woman. Samples of hair and blood were also taken. Betty said that she was shown a map which, amongst trade routes and other things, showed the being's homeworld. The story caused a sensation when it was published in detail four years later. Betty, who had drawn star maps during her session with Dr Simon, gave them to astronomer Marjorie Fish and tried to create an interpretation of what they might mean. According to the Encyclopedia of the Unexplained by Jenny Randalls and Peter Hoff, this required information that could not have been known by Betty back in 1961. Fish's outcome gave the location of the alien homeworld as being in the Zeta Reticuli star system, 39 light years from Earth. As with UFO sightings in general, alien abductions have apparently been happening since time immemorial, but it was only around the time of the Betty and Barney Hill case that people started to feel more comfortable reporting their incidents to the world. There was a case when a man called Herb Shermer was taken. Of course, there was PC Alan Godfrey from Todmorden uh, was taken too, as we've discussed in a previous episode. And of course, there was the abduction of Travis Walton in Snowflake, Arizona, and Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker in Pascagoula too. All of these people experienced some time loss and needed hypnotic regression uh, to reveal what had been hidden away from them in their own brains. While alien abduction still goes on, both it and its victims are made to be the subject of ridicule from friends, families, general population who instead of listening to them, judge them to be weird. Sadly, some have taken their own lives instead of getting to speak about their incidents. Anyone who wants to talk about such things will always be welcome to on here. If you want to send me a anonymous message or you want me to keep it off of the podcast, whatever you want to say, just say, okay? 
UFOs were, up until 1960s, mostly being reported in the United States, with the odd one or two coming from anywhere else on Earth. As the 1960s rolled on and people started to feel more free to do and say whatever they wanted without fear and damnation from religions, or mum and dad for that matter, reports did start to come in from the rest of the world. They included mass sightings made by children in attendance at a school in Westall, Melbourne, Australia. It was the 6th of April 1966, 11 o'clock in the morning. Pupils at the high school in Westall in Melbourne had just finished a sports class when they saw a silver-grey saucer-shaped object in the sky. Twice the size of a car, this weird object seemed to change shapes at times. It descended into a field, hover over the edge of another nearby school, Westall Junior School, then seemed to disappear from view. Over 200 people had gathered outside the school gates uh, looking into the skies for the strange object. It came back. Witnesses were able to watch it for more than 20 minutes. It then rose up and streaked through the sky, pursued by five unidentified aircraft. Both the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society and the Phenomena Research Australia investigated the incident, taking statements from students and bystanders as well as collecting samples from the surrounding area. To this day, the incident remains unexplained. This happened in 1966, yet in 1994, another very similar mass sighting occurred at a school in Rua, Zimbabwe, when a group of more than 60 students saw a UFO come down in a field of brush and small trees near their school. This time, alien beings came out of the craft and approached the children. Some of the children ran away scared, but the older kids didn't. They stayed and watched. According to Harvard University professor of psychiatry John Mack, the aliens telepathically communicated a message of environmental destruction of Earth if world powers did not change their ways. Then the aliens got back aboard their ship and it flew away. The children at Ariel School and a few teachers who told their stories were ignored by those in charge. One teacher threatened with his job and more if he said anything. The children of Ariel and Westall schools were ignored until fairly recently when documentary makers got in contact with them to make documentaries about the day the UFO visited their schools. You can find these documentaries on the internet, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Netflix too I believe. Into the 1970s now, and UFO sightings continued. Of course, there was the Berwyn Mountain incident in Wales in 1975. Uh, again, Travis Walton's abduction, as already mentioned. But then, just as the 1980s were getting comfortable, an incident occurred in a forest in Suffolk in the UK. That forest was named Rendlesham. The incident that happened there over a couple of days would put this place firmly on the map of the big UFO sightings. This is the UK's most famous UFO incident to date. Now, first things first, you really must go to Rendlesham Forest. Apparently loads of witchy stuff happened there just a few hundred years ago and some believe that the poem of Beowulf was actually written there, well, at the village of Rendlesham instead of in the forest. It's a really nice forest with its trails, neatly lined trees. You really must go there. You, you have to. 
I've been there twice now and completed the UFO trail twice, including once in 35 degrees centigrade heat, which I can tell you was not fun. I thought I was going to catch fire. It wasn't fun. There are some hotels nearby, but I recommend camping at the Orchard Wild Camping campsite in Saxmundham, which is within easy reach of Rendlesham Forest. Being a wild campsite, it is completely dark at night and the view of space is absolutely spectacular. I'm not getting paid for that, by the way. Anyway, Rendlesham Forest back in 1980 was a very different place indeed. The two disused RAF bases were being used by the US Air Force. Those bases are RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters that we've heard of before. Yes, it was the one that had the incident back in 1956. This was 1980 and therefore the Cold War was still going on and the USSR was not that far away. In the early hours of the 26th of December 1980, US servicemen saw strange lights in the sky. Radar at the twin bases had tracked an unidentified object. The lights came down in the forest and servicemen thought that this was a small plane that had crashed and so proceeded to go and check it out to see if they could render any assistance if it was needed. However, upon entering the forest uh, to investigate, Sergeant Jim Penniston and John Burroughs saw what they described as a glowing object, metallic in appearance, with coloured lights. As they approached it, it appeared to move through the trees. Apparently, nearby animals panicked. Sergeant Penniston later claimed to have encountered a craft of unknown origin whilst in the forest. Penniston and Burroughs saw the craft come right down, almost to the ground. They thought it might even have landed. Sergeant Penniston got close enough to touch the craft. He said the skin of the craft was smooth to touch, almost like running your hand over glass. Void of imperfections until I ran my fingers over some symbols. The symbols were nothing like the rest of the craft. They were rough, like running my fingers over sandpaper. As Penniston touched the symbols, the white lights on the top of the craft flared up and became so intense he was fear-struck and temporarily blinded by it. Penniston removed his hand from the UFO and as soon as he did, the light dimmed and the feeling of panic receded. After some time, the craft lifted slowly off of the ground and it accelerated away in the blink of an eye, yet none of the men heard any noises coming from it. They also experienced a bit of time loss. The other weird thing about Rendlesham Forest case is that on the 28th of December 1980, only a couple of days later, it came back. Colonel Charles Holt accompanied the men and took a tape, an old-style tape recorder with him to document what they saw. He had no way of knowing that he would end up documenting another sighting of a UFO, possibly the same one of a couple of days before. That recording of the Holt tape has gone down in UFO history. It is available to listen to on YouTube. There's probably other places you can get it, but definitely there. According to Holt, three starlight lights were seen in the sky, two to the north and one to the south, a little above the horizon. He said that the brightest of these stars hovered for about two to three hours and seemed to beam a stream of light down from time to time. I urge you all to have a listen to the Colonel Holt tape on YouTube after this podcast. 
There has been no more sightings of anything strange at Rendlesham Forest. Weirdly, though, Colonel Holt's memo and others, uh, other written documents from those two days of activity went missing very soon afterwards, and apparently no one has seen them since. Strange, eh? And there have been people who have tried to debunk it by saying the lights that they saw were the lighthouse of Orford Ness. I don't for one second believe that highly trained servicemen of the USAF would not know a lighthouse. Also, the Orford Net Lighthouse has a cover on the sort of land side of it so that it doesn't shine its light on land. The Rendlesham Forest UFO incident was a watershed moment for ufology in the United Kingdom. They'd suddenly realised that these things were not just flying over and being spotted in the USA or other far-off places, but they were here as well, in the UK now, and they were over military bases. It was only a matter of years later that MI5 opened a sort of UFO desk. One of the main people uh, to man that desk, Nick Pope, went to investigate many, many reports of UFO sightings, including uh, Rendlesham, across the UK, and is active now within the ufology community. Now fast forward to the late 1980s and into the 1990s and the prevalence of the video camera. Yep, these things were massive and they were quite heavy too, not like the camcorders you get nowadays and definitely nothing like the video cameras on your mobile phones. Camcorders in those days were so big you had to hold them in your hand, rest it on your shoulder just to hold them level. No wonder then that with the sheer size of these things, holding them in one position for any amount of time was nigh on impossible. Now imagine using it to film a strange light in the sky. Using that hefty piece of equipment to pinpoint and then zoom into a possible UFO. The 1990s were full of UFO videos that could not be properly seen simply because of the heavy cameras being too difficult to hold in position. There are of course instances in which these camcorders did manage to capture some decent footage of UFOs such as that uh, captured at Gulf Breeze in Florida both in 1988 and 1990 and the Pensacola Bridge sighting as well. But it was really the smartphone that changed the way that everyday person could document UFOs. Let me just explain for my younger listeners. Back in the 1980s and 90s, to take a good photograph, we would have to go, we would have to open up the camera, point, zoom in to the object, hold the camera as still as possible while trying not to move the camera when pressing the, the button to take the photograph. Uh, to, take more photographs to finish the film off and then get the film out carefully and send it to the photography lab to be developed and sent back to us in about two weeks only for us to just see a blurry image of something that no one could make out. It was the same with the cine cameras and the video cameras too unfortunately. So it was a great relief to a lot of people that when the 2000s came in and they brought with them camera phones and soon after that smartphones like the iPhone. This meant very soon that everyone would have a camera and a video camera in their pocket. Very soon sites like YouTube would be brimming with your pictures and videos of strange things in the sky. 
and while a lot of them were usual kooky or shaky videos, there were some real good ones too. I remember watching a video someone had made of a UFO landing in possibly a Russian town, but I'm not too sure if it was real or not, that's how good it was. Then in 2017, some videos started appearing on the internet of UFOs flying over the sea. These weren't caught with an iPhone or a camcorder. These were caught using the highest video technology that could be placed onto Americans' Navy planes that were based aboard the USS Nimitz and the USS Theodore Roosevelt back in 2004, 2014 and 2015. According to Wikipedia, additional footage has come to light taken by other Navy personnel in 2019. These videos shocked the world because they didn't just appear on uh, sites like YouTube, they appeared on the national TV news in many Western countries. I remember well sitting in my van one morning about to start work when LBC's no-nonsense presenter Nick Ferrari started talking about UFOs. Then the BBC were doing it on their main news programmes on television and radio. The next day the newspapers followed suit, although due to the ongoing Brexit stuff uh, going on at the time, most of them were uh, chose to put it further inside their publications instead of on the front page. It was possibly the biggest UFO story since the Kenneth Arnold sighting, or indeed Roswell itself. On December the 16th, 2017, the New York Times reported incidents and published the videos. These videos, known as the FLIR, Gimbal and the GoFast, purported to show US Navy jets from the Nimitz and the Roosevelt encountering unusually shaped, fast-moving aircraft. The videos featuring cockpit display data and infrared imagery, along with audio communications from the pilots, were given to the press by Luis Elizondo, who was the former head of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, for short. This was the Department of Defense's investigatory program. Elizondo had resigned from the Pentagon in October 2017 to protest over government secrecy uh, and the opposition to the investigation ATIP were carrying out on those videos. Elizondo stated that the Defence Secretary, James Mattis, was not taking ATIP seriously at all. It was confirmed in 2019 that the videos had been taken by naval pilots and that the videos were part of a larger issue of an increased number of training range incursions made by unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs, basically UFOs. In April 2020, the Pentagon formally released these three videos. On Friday the 25th of June 2021, the Office of Director of National Intelligence released its eagerly awaited unclassified intelligence report titled Preliminary Assessment Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. The report does not tell us much other than these objects remain unidentified. However, the fact that the Pentagon has officially released these videos means that they acknowledge UFOs do exist. This was huge news for the ufology community. Skeptics have tried but failed to explain away the videos caught by Navy pilots nearly 18 years ago. 
They've followed a report on the UFOs in the US Congress in the summer of 2021 in which officials examined 144 incidents from the previous two decades, including the three videos mentioned above, and described them as showing unidentified aerial phenomena, but could not be certain from where uh, those UFOs originated from. Only a few of the incidents we looked at were explainable. The huge majority were not explainable. Many people like Luis Elizondo have said that these objects that could apparently cover vast distances in half a second were not of this earth. Others, like Dr Stephen Greer, believe that these objects were man-made but back-engineered by people who have been working on crashed and other recovered UFOs in previous decades. Lots of people are seeing these events as the tip of the iceberg that may very well lead to full UFO and extraterrestrial disclosure. I hope that that is something I see in my lifetime. In fact, the sooner the better, in my opinion. Whatever your thoughts on ufology, strange things have been seen in the sky for millennia and witnessed and documented by the rich, famous, powerful, religious, non-religious, from Pliny all the way through to thousands of years ago, all the way through to, to you and me today. The subject is alive and well, and may well just be about to wake up. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that is all from me today. Uh, UFOs and other paranormal stuff will be back in the not-too-distant future. I hope that you have enjoyed this special 75th anniversary uh, episode of the of the start of modern ufology, basically. Have a good two days. Have a good, well, have a good few weeks, but enjoy the World UFO Days. Um, don't forget, if any of you do have any stories, do send me the stories via the uh, contact form at the bottom of the website, www.ufosandops.com. Uh, also, if you've got any guest suggestions, please do the same. Contact form at the bottom of the website. And also, again, if if you can, please do donate. It'd be very kind of you. And like I say, that's all from me. So I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>